So we're in John 5, we're rolling through John. I love the book of John. What strikes me as we enter into John 5, a very familiar story and a very familiar miracle, is that in these days and in these times, we must think biblically about time, about time. And when I say we must think biblically about time, I mean we must think biblically about our time on the earth. As we get into this tonight, I wanna start with four or five references. We are surrounded by idols, God tells us that you shall have no other gods before me. But it is human nature to take God off the throne and to put something else or someone else on the throne. The psalmist says, but as for me, but as for me, doesn't matter what anybody else does. The majority of people, this is always true, the majority of people are on the wrong path, going the wrong direction. We, we, when we're raising our kids, we try to train them about withstanding peer pressure. But have you noticed peer pressure didn't go away when you got out of high school? Peer pressure never goes away. Peer pressure is with us our entire lives. There are, there are guys in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s that still have no backbone when it comes to resisting peer pressure. Even though they know it's wrong and it's the wrong thing to do and it makes no sense, but they have no backbone, they develop no spiritual character. That's a wasted life. Now that can be fixed with Christ, but without him, it can't be fixed. David says, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. Now watch this. My times are in your hand. The reason that he goes into that is that oftentimes we find ourselves in situations and circumstances where it appears that our times are in somebody else's hands. It appears that someone else has the power to determine our future. Someone else has the power to determine our well-being. Someone else has the power to determine our destiny, but that is not true. Doesn't mean we don't have people in authority over us. Doesn't mean we don't have someone that we work for. Doesn't mean that we don't have a government that is over us. It doesn't mean any of those things but it means that ultimately my times and what happens to me in my times are in your hand. That's how you think about time. That's how you think about your time on the earth. That's how you think about what's going on in your life right now in these times. My times are in your hands, not the government's hands, not my employer's hands, not this guy's hands, not this, not that. My times are in your hands. Now that's either true or it isn't. But it's true. 
because God runs the whole world. Ecclesiastes 3. This is familiar territory, so familiar that the birds, you remember that great gospel quartet? <laughs> Use this for a hit song in the 60s. And a lot of kids are smoking dope and singing this. They had no idea what I meant. Solomon wrote, there's an appointed time for everything. And think about this in terms of your life. And there is a time for every event under heaven. Every event in your past, every event in your future, every event that you are facing right now and that you are in the middle of. There is an appointed time. Well, who appointed it? Did you appoint it? No, you didn't appoint it. God appointed it because as for me, I say that you are my God. I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hands. That's all of my times. That's all of my events. There's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. If you're in World War I and you're put on the front lines, there's a time to kill. And in combat, that's not murder. There, but there is a time to kill and there's a time to heal. You don't recover from being in combat overnight. It may take you years and 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 you'll still have those dreams. There's a time to tear down and there's a time to build up. There was a time to weep and a time to laugh. And by the way, how many of these have you had in your life already? Well, if you have, they've been appointed by God because my times are in your hand. Are we always mourning? No. Are we always laughing? No. Because there are specific times. Uh, there's a time to weep for. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to throw stones. There's a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing a time to search, and a time to give up is lost. Boy, that can be painful. A time to keep, and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart, and a time to sew together. A time to be silent, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. To hate? Yeah. There's some things that you are to hate. There's seven things God hates. We're to hate sin. We're to hate evil. There's an appropriate hate that's tied in with the holiness and the character of God. Doesn't mean we hate people, but we can hate what people do. And even those who mean harm to us, we're to pray for them. There's a time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in, in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Watch this. He has made, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet 
so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. You don't know that everything is God that God has planned for your life or for the times of your life or for the seasons of your life or for the nations in which you live your life. You don't know that, but God knows it because there's a plan. Which would take us to Psalm 139, verse 16. And what are we doing here? We're thinking biblically about time. We're thinking biblically about our time on the earth. David goes back to when he was constructed in the womb by Almighty God. And he says in 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance when I was sperm, when I was egg, before I showed up on ultrasound. And in your book, when I was a sperm and an egg, before I showed up on ultrasound. I'm gonna tell you something, I love this. Absolutely love this. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now I'm telling you, we give glory to God for that. Because you know what that's saying? That's saying my times are in your hand. <laughs> and my wife's times are in his hands. And all my kids, their times are in his hands. Miscarriage, it's in his hands. That's an astonishing truth. So your time right now that you're here, that you're alive, that you're breathing. Time is all about God. He controls time. He controls our, our time on the earth. He controls the events surrounding us on our time of the earth. We're appointed to be alive right now. And then Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed for a man once to die and then comes judgment. The time of your death was appointed before you were even conceived. Psalm 138.8. Have you heard of uh, the acronym uh, FOMO, F-O-M-O? It's the fear of missing out. I, I remember in my 20s, I had a, I thought about that a lot. I didn't want to miss out on anything. I'd never heard of that before because it wasn't used back then, but somebody came up with it in the last couple of decade, decades. And a lot of young people have a fear of missing out. Well, Psalm 138.8 is the cure to FOMO. <laughs> the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. You don't have, need to have any fear of missing out because of what this says. The Lord will. It doesn't say he might. Oh, I hope he does. Gosh, I'm betting he does. It doesn't say any of that. It says the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. That would tie in with Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. So my times are in his hand, which right now is extremely comforting. Because we're living in precarious times, we're living in unprecedented times, we're living in times where we, we I mean, 
We don't know what's going to happen in the next hour. We don't know what insanity is going to occur in somebody's mind who has a position of authority and power, and they're going to try to force feed it on everybody else. This is, the word really is unprecedented. So how do you get any relief? How do you get any comfort? How do you get any stability? How do you get any peace? By thinking biblically about time and by thinking specifically about my time on the earth. It's not on you. It's not on anybody else. It's in the hands of Almighty God. So with that in mind, we go to John 5. In, in John 5, there's a very well-known story of a man who has had a very disappointing life. Let me give you the outline, and then we'll read the text, and we'll work our way through this. First point, the miracle after a long time. The miracle after a long time, 38 years to be specific, as we'll see in a minute. That'll be John 5, verses 1 through 9. Secondly, the master over time. That'll be verses 10 through 16 of John 5. The master over time. Thirdly, the murder planned for a future time. That would be verses 16 through 18 of John chapter 5. So let's read John 5. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So now he's back up in Jerusalem. We're not sure which of the feasts it was. We're not told. But there were three, and he was at one of them. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porticos, or porches, arches. By the way, this has been excavated archaeologically, and you can go there, and you can visit it, and there are actually two pools. And you can see it, and you can walk around. In these, the porticos, the porticos were like, uh, you had the archways, and then they had roofs over them, so that these different afflicted people, as we'll see in a minute, could have shelter from sun and from weather. And it, it was a sad place. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season, at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well, and whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, I need to make a comment about 3 and 4. If you have a King James Bible, it reads pretty much like I just read. If you have another translation, uh, the King James was done in 1611. If you have anything that was done after that, like the New American Standard, which is very true to the Greek and Hebrew, and that came out in the, uh, when did I get that? I was a senior in college. So I forgot my first copy of the New American Standard Bible 
right around 71, 72. And I've used it ever since. Or if you have an ESV or, but what I'm saying to you in my Bible, that section at the end of verse three, waiting for the moving of the waters all the way down to the end of verse four is in brackets. Why is it in brackets? Well, in the margin, it says early manuscripts do not contain the remainder of verse three nor verse four. You say, wait a minute, is my Bible wrong? No, no, this is, you know, we're very fortunate because we live in a time where there have been tremendous archeological discoveries. They've been discoveries of ancient manuscripts. We don't have the original copy of the Gospel of John. We don't have the original copy of any book in the Bible. And you say, oh my gosh, how we can trust the Bible. Well, there's, a, there's a, really a science called textual criticism. And um, it, it's, it, it, it's remarkable and it's amazing with the technology that we have, how we're able to go back and date the earliest manuscript. So why don't we have the original manuscript? Quite frankly, if we had the original manuscript and they found it somewhere in Jerusalem, somebody would build a library and a church over it and they would come in and worship the, the original manuscript. If you go to Jerusalem, they have churches built around the most ludicrous things. The first tooth that Jesus lost as a baby and that Mary and Joseph put under the pillow and gave him a shekel. They got a church over it. Now that I just made up. But I'm telling you, they got churches built over things that are that ludicrous and have no biblical basis and it's a place of veneration and worship and quite frankly, idolatry. God gave us his word. He's watching over his word to perform it and God providentially has kept his word. And fortunately, when they did the King James Version, they, they used the best manuscripts they had back in 1611. But since then, we've uncovered thousands of manuscripts. Thousands. And you can compare manuscripts. And I mean, you can with confidence know that you've got the original text. I mean, Dan Wallace down at Dallas Seminary is one of the top men in the world on this. Um, I'm not going to say much more about that. That shouldn't that shouldn't shake your confidence in the Bible. It should increase your confidence in the Bible. The, the earlier text, if you got a bunch of texts in 1611 that say this, and then later years you find out earlier texts, you find a bunch of earlier texts, I mean a bunch of them, and they don't contain this, you can pretty much be sure that someone inserted that and it wasn't originally given by the Lord. So therefore it's in brackets. Does that make sense? Sure it does. Let, let's read three and then let's jump to five, all right? In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now go down to five. A man was there who had been ill, who had been in his sickness for 38 years. He'd been sick, ill, 
it doesn't actually come out and say he's a paralytic, but he probably was a paralytic because he couldn't move to get into the water, as we'll see in just a minute. Verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, now, now this, this, now let's just back up here. Let's slow down. So you've got these people everywhere with cancer, with all these different diseases, and they're spread out around. There's actually two pools. And they're, they're everywhere, under these porches, under these porticles. And there is something to the fact that the water would stir, and he's going to report this. He's going to tell Jesus about it. Of course, Jesus already knew about it. But that water is going to get stirred up. It wasn't an angel. What we know now is that there are intermittent springs there uh, that will bubble up from time to time. That water in that particular area is full of minerals, has sort of a red cast, red dye to it. That's, that's kind of the context. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. But I want you to get this. There, there, there were hundreds of people that were sick, that were ill. And Jesus comes walking in and goes up to one guy. Although there were all kinds of people in need. You say, why, why did he do that? And the answer is, who knows? Isaiah 55, 8, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. We don't know why. It doesn't tell us why. When Jesus saw him lying there, verse 6, and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, how did Jesus know that? Because he's God. Because it says earlier in John that he knew what was in the hearts of men. He talks to the woman at the well earlier in John. Well, I don't have a husband. You said correctly you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband. He knew the hearts of men. And then she went and told the leaders of the city, he told me everything about me. That's exactly right. Because he knows everything about the woman at the well, he knows everything about you, he knows everything about me, he knows everything. He's Jesus, he's the God-man. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Does that seem like a strange thing to ask a guy who's been sick for 38 years? But in actuality, and if you talk to doctors, and you talk to pastors, and you talk to some counselors, they will tell you that they treat all kinds of people, and surprisingly, a large number of them, I mean, everybody says they want to get well, but they'll tell you from personal experience and from medical practice and being a pastor and dealing with people, not everybody who is sick really wants to get well. Because some people, quite frankly, take comfort in their affliction. Others want to get well. A doctor will prescribe this and this, 
and perhaps some therapy and this, and those who want to get well will take that, read it, and implement it. But many take it home and throw it in the medicine cabinet with all the other prescriptions. Not everybody, but this is a very rational question to ask someone who is sick. Not, not everyone who has a sickness, not everyone who has an addiction really wants to get well. It's got to come from them. It's got to come from within. There has to be a desire. So Jesus asked the man, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And again, I would emphasize not by an angel, but by the intermittent spring. And they had this thought, you know, people go to different shrines. There's a place in France that they go to. And they think being there, they're going to get healed. We believe God can heal. Of course God can heal. But we also know that God doesn't heal everyone. So Jesus asked him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered and said, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, trying to get there, another steps down before me. That was his dilemma. Our friend J.C. Ryle, who I talked about a couple weeks ago, Ryle points out this about this man. This man was friendless. He had no one to help him get in the water. This man was helpless. And as a result, this man was hopeless. Now, what's interesting is that in the times of our lives, there will be a time in your life where, and the Bible calls this the wilderness. There'll be a chapter in your life, if you have a desire to be used by God and you have a desire to follow Christ, God takes his men at certain points into the wilderness because God does his deepest work in the wilderness. And when you're in the wilderness, you're usually friendless. You're usually helpless, and you're usually hopeless. So Moses went into the wilderness at the age of 40 after defending his Jewish brother who was being attacked by the Egyptian guard. And Moses, as you know, you know his story and how God sovereignly and providentially took this little Jewish boy. By the way, he was born at the worst possible time, if you recall that. Because what Pharaoh was doing, if it's a Jewish boy, if it's a girl, fine. But if, to the midwives, if it's a Jewish boy, kill him. That's when Moses was born. You know, sometimes, I've, and you've heard this, well, I, this is not a good time to bring a child into the world. That was not a good time to bring a child into the world. But he was, by the way, can we say this about Moses? His times were in his hands. He was appointed for those times. And through a remarkable set of providential circumstances, what happens, he is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And he is raised by his mother, who was hired to be his nanny. And he was raised in the palace as Pharaoh's son. And he was in line to be Pharaoh of Egypt. 
But at the age of 40, he came up with his own plan and realized God didn't put me here just for my own comfort and to drive a BMW. God put me here to save my people. And so he went ahead and implemented his own time on his own timetable, and it blew up in his face, and he had to flee for his life, and God put him in the wilderness for 40 years. And he was friendless, he was helpless, and he was hopeless, and for 40 years he wandered around, and all he had going for him was basically nothing. And he had a shot, and he blew it. Have you ever had a shot, and you blew it, and you failed? And say so you think, that's it, it's over, I'm finished, I'm done. That's where this guy was. Now your circumstances may be different, but this does happen to Christian people. But you see, my times are in your hands. So that means if God puts me in the wilderness, my time in the wilderness is part of his plan, and he's got a purpose, and he's got something he's gonna do in the wilderness. As Bill Lawrence has said, the wilderness is not a bad place, it's a hard place. But it's not a bad place because God does good things in the wilderness that he does nowhere else. God does things in the wilderness that he doesn't do when you have your own private jet. God does things in the wilderness when you're wondering if you're going to be able to buy groceries. And maybe you still own a chain of grocery stores. God takes his men in the wilderness for a season, and that season has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you never know how long it's going to last. You can't know, but God knows. And then once he's done the work, he'll bring you out, and you're ready for the next chapter of your life. See, my times are in your hands. So when these different events happen to us, you got to take a step back and you got to think biblically and say to yourself, what is going on? Why am I encountering this huge disappointment, this setback? Why have I been blindsided? The only way you're going to get any hope, the only way you're going to get any peace, the only way you're going to be able to really figure this out and grow out of it is to be teachable to what the Scripture says. You don't want to waste an experience like that. Verse 7, the sick man said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now watch what Jesus said to him. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And you know what's fascinating? This guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. He has no clue who Jesus is, as we're going to see in just a minute. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And here's what's really amazing. The guy did it. You remember earlier in John? And we're, I'm going to refer to this throughout the study of the book of John. At Cana, and Mary said to the servants, they were out of wine. Mary said to those servants, do whatever he tells you to do. I mean, there you go. Here's your mission statement. Do whatever he tells you to do. And as this man who had been hopeless for 38 years looks at Jesus, there was something that occurred. And you know, it's fascinating. What Jesus told him to do was impossible. It was flat out impossible. It's like later, Jesus is going to say to the man with the withered hand, 
stretch forth thy hand. Well, he can't stretch forth his hand. His hand is dead. The nerve endings are gone. They're dead. They're withered. They're shriveled. But there is something that occurred here that he believed enough to do what Jesus said. And he picks up his pallet and walks. Look at verse 9. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. This is phenomenal. This is a miracle. This is one for the ages. But there was a problem. There was a big problem. You would think everybody in Jerusalem, everybody would be rejoicing, giving God glory and praising God. But you see, we read at the end of verse 9, now it was the Sabbath on that day. The time of this miracle, the time, the time, the time. My times are in your hands. The time of the miracle was the Sabbath day. Saturday for the Jews. This presented a, this presents a major shift in the entire book of John. Because from here on out, there is absolute hatred and a desire to kill Christ by the leaders of the nation. They, they, they hadn't liked him up till now. He was presenting himself as Messiah as we're going to see in a minute. Now, he's, he's just coming out. I'm God. And they're not buying it. And they don't like it. Because if, if he's God, they got to bow the knee. And they don't want to bow the knee because, you see, they're at the very top. So this brings us to our second point in the outline. He's the master over time. He's the master over time. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Actually, it was. They said it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But you see, it was. Here was the deal with the Pharisees. They said, we are the ones who believe in the Old Testament law. We believe in the law that God has given. The whole purpose of the Sabbath is in Exodus 31, it was, whenever God made a covenant with Abraham, there, there's a sign. Uh, the covenant with Abraham was circumcision for a Jewish boy on the eighth day. Uh, from there on out. There, uh, for the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses when he was leading the people in Exodus 31, and you can read it, is, is the Sabbath, is Saturday. And that was, that was directly from the Lord. What that meant the Sabbath day was that you rested from your normal work that you would do the other six days. That was it. That was what God intended by the Sabbath. But what they did over the years, their rabbis came up with an oral law. Or to put it in our contemporary term, they came up with bureaucratic regulations that they added to God's law, and they took their human bureaucratic regulations and made it equal to God's law and it wasn't equal it was just the opinions of men and they had 39 of them it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet 
Well, according to your bureaucratic regulation, which you added and is not from God, it's not. But he answered them, well, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who healed, who was healed, did not know who it was. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know anything about him. Jesus just shows up and heals the guy. The man who was healed did not know, 13, who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Jesus would often go stealth. You know, at one point, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. He just went stealth. It wasn't his time to die. He was gone. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So what's that all about? Why would Jesus say this to the guy? Jesus knew that his sickness was the result of some sin that had occurred earlier in his life. Now, we got to say this. If someone is sick, it doesn't necessarily mean they're being disciplined. It can mean that, but not everyone who is sick is because of their sin. Uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about when they would take communion, they would do it at their love feast, and they would have, you know, food and celebration, and they would have wine. And a lot of them participated and took the bread and the wine, and they did it in an unworthy manner, and they were getting schnockered. They weren't there to, to do this in remembrance of me. They weren't taking the bread, and they weren't taking the wine and remembering what Jesus did on the cross as they were instructed to do. So what were they doing? They were just saying, hey, this is a free deal. It's an open bar. They had no interest in what the significance of it was. And that's in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You're not to keep knocking back the wine just to get your jollies. This is serious stuff. You're to consider your, your salvation. You're to consider your Savior, what he has done. 28, a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, watch this, many among you are weak and sick. And a number sleep. So some of them had died. And before that, they'd been sick, some of them. And it was tied to the sin. And if that's a person's situation, they know their sin tied to the sickness. But is that everyone? No. Job was afflicted. And Job was afflicted not because of his sin. He was afflicted because he was the most righteous man on the earth. And Satan said, you blessed him so much, you let me afflict him, then he'll curse you and die. He really doesn't trust in you. In John 9, you've got a man who's born blind from birth. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? 
that he would be born blind. They're asking him directly. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. This guy didn't sin. He's not blind because he sinned. So not all sickness is because of sin. Sometimes people get sick, and it's not, it's clearly not of sin. So just, we got to understand that. But this guy, Jesus wouldn't have said this unless there was a particular sin, and this is why Jesus says, go and sin no more. Follow me. But they really don't like what Jesus has done. They're, they're extremely bothered by this. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now watch this, 16. For this reason, the Jews are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What a bunch of bureaucratic, nitpicking, sniveling, worthless little power freaks. They never go away. Their whole job is to ruin life. Their whole job is to take away joy. They love the power. Were they praising God? They should have been praising God. But no, they're upset because he broke one of their bureaucratic rules. And by the way, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. Jesus invented the Sabbath. Jesus owns the Sabbath. Jesus has the copyright and the trademark for the. He's got all the papers on the Sabbath. He invented it. So if anybody knows whether or not he'd break the Sabbath, it would be Jesus. And Jesus didn't come to break the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law in every point. So the problem wasn't with Jesus. The problem was with them. 17, but he answered them and said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And I'm always working. 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. This would be our third point, the murder plan for a future time, verses 16 through 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the time, were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Which he just happened to be. And then on, they were going to kill him. And they did. But my times are in your hand. That was why he came. That's why he went to the cross, to die in our place. I, I want to finish this up by making an application of verse 17. It's a, it's a fascinating statement. He answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. God is always working. Let's go back to the man who was there 38 years. He was in a type of wilderness, all right? 38 years is a long time. If you read through the Psalms and this is something you can do in over a matter of weeks. But you can read through the Psalms, take X amount per day, and just give yourself time. But every time you see the word wait, circle it. And then when you're done reading through the 150 Psalms, go back and just, you know, 
Go through it quickly and see how many times you see the word wait. God often puts his men in the wilderness and when he puts us in the wilderness, he calls us to wait. That's very hard for us because we're men. We want to get it done and we want to get it done now. We hate waiting. We want to be productive. We want to achieve. Many of us are results oriented. We want to check our list. We have our objectives. We have our goals. We want to compare where we are here with where we were last year at this time. We, 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 we don't have time to sit around. We don't have time to wait. Life is short. Time is short. I want to be productive with my time. Of course you do. In my life, God always has at least one situation in my life that is active where I am being forced to wait on him that I can do nothing about by myself. I, I can do certain things that are legitimate. I mean, if you're without a job, you put in as many applications as you can. You talk to as many people as you can. But, but you can't just manufacture a job. You do everything you can do, but sometimes there's nothing there. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes God will just hem you in, and God will frustrate your plans. And God will not give you the breakthrough that you're desiring and the breakthrough that you want, and you're praying, and you're asking for his help, and you're getting nothing. Or it's a, it's a, a family situation. It's a relationship situation, and you're trying to repair it, uh, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. But they refuse to enable you or to allow you to be at peace because they won't even talk, they won't even communicate, they've shut you down. There's not a thing you can do about that. You, you know exactly what I'm referring to. It, it might be a health issue that you were afflicted with, your wife, one of your kids is afflicted with, and and you just feel so helpless because they actually have a place in that hospital called a waiting room. And you can be in the room, but only so many people at one time. And sometimes you just have to go to the room that is designated for waiting. And there's really nothing you can do. You're hoping the doctors can. You're hoping the Lord will. But you have to wait. And when you're waiting, what you are asking the Lord to do is to get you out of that as soon as possible. Right? So there was a Puritan pastor 300 years ago by the name of Obadiah Sedgwick. And in his book on contentment, he had three principles for those who are waiting on God. Waiting on God, by the way, is not being passive. It's not, it, it, it's, it's, it's not passivity. It's not sitting on the couch and watching ESPN it's, it's, that's not it. You, you, you still have responsibilities in other areas of your life. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You keep doing the next right thing. But in this particular situation, you don't have the power. You don't have the ability. So we're, Sedgwick says when you're waiting on God in that type of situation, he has three principles that will encourage you as you're waiting on God. Here's the first one. In your life, God will take time, but he will never waste time. And that takes me back to verse 17 of John 5. 
But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am, work am working. We're always working. Uh, he upholds all things by the word of his power, 24-7. He upholds the law of gravity. He makes the universe work. He upholds it all. So he's always working. And not only throughout the universe and not only throughout the world, but he's working in the lives of his people. And he's working in your life. And the amazing thing is when we're waiting, you know what our problem is? We think he's not doing anything. But he's working. Even when you see absolutely no results, he is working. Because that's what he does and that's who he is. In your life, God will take time, but he will not waste time. He's up to something. Let me give you a great verse. Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Once again, no eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. So there's nothing you can do about repairing a relationship with a family member and they're all upset and all that. Not a thing you can do, okay? Then you step back, you pray for them, and you hold up to the Lord, Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. I'm asking you, Lord, I'm trusting you. I hold your word up. I thank you that you're working. And you're working in ways I know nothing about. Are you, are, are you gonna bring a believer into their life that can establish a relationship and speak truth to their lives in a way that I can? I don't know what you're gonna do. But you see, you hold up his word. He's working. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Second principle. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. But I've been waiting for such a long time. And the thing is, the longer we wait, the longer we wait, the more we lose hope. So the psalmist over in Psalm 130 is in the depths. He's in a very hard place. He's extremely discouraged. He's... He's going down for the count. And in Psalm 130, he says this in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. Because you see, there's nothing, he can't fix what's wrong. And he doesn't tell us what's wrong. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. Watch this. And in his word do I hope. When you're waiting for God, the longer you wait, the only thing that's going to give you hope is if you're in the word. Nothing else is going to give you hope. So you, you've got to make time. And it's very wise, if you're a morning guy, in the morning, spend some time in the Word. And if there are some key verses that have ministered to you, memorize those verses. If you're an evening guy, do it at night. But in his word do I hope. I will tell you this, if you're waiting on God, what the enemy's gonna try to do is to try to get you out of the Bible. He, he's gonna try to get you to close your Bible instead of open your Bible. And when you do that, I mean, you're shooting yourself. You, you just cut off your, your only source of hope. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. And think about that. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. 
I've taught these principles before. It's been years, but I've taught them here. And I'm going to use an illustration I use. So Mary likes to make protein shakes. She's got all this frozen fruit from Costco. We buy these 800 bags of fruit. But for some reason, she likes fresh bananas. So every once in a while, I'll get a text, and you get some bananas on the way home. So I'll walk in, and they get 800 bananas. And I turn around, and I'll walk out. Why? Because they're green. She doesn't want green bananas. Green bananas are worthless. Green banana, you ever tasted a green banana? <laughs> I mean, they're horrible. She wants green bananas. She wants a yellow banana with the green on the stalk. You know exactly what it's what you want. And we're praying, oh Lord, just get me out of this now. Lord, get me out of this now. At the right time, God's all about the right time. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will exalt you. He's all about timing. God will never, in your prayers, in your desperation to get out of this situation, and he's delaying, He'll never give you a green banana. When he delivers a mercy, let me say this to you, it'll be right, and it will be ripe, R-I-P-E. It'll be sweet, and it's worth waiting for. Third principle, when God delays a mercy, he often doubles the mercy. When God delays the mercy, he often doubles the mercy. Think of Job. Everything that was taken away from Job, at the end of the book of Job, it says when he forgave his friends, God returned to him everything, how much? Double. Double. Isaiah 61.7 says the same thing. Those who have waited, God returns double. I've seen God do this so many times in my own life. Some of you guys can say the same thing. I get so frustrated. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And the whole time he's working to bring a deliverance, to bring a mercy, to bless me. Not to him who is able to do far beyond anything we could ever ask or think to him be glory in the church forever. So if he's called you to wait, don't get passive. You've still got plenty of work to do. Go about your work. But hold up the scripture. Stay in the scripture. I'm thinking about five different situations where I've seen God do this in my life. We, I had a period, I was asked many decades ago, I was strongly encouraged to resign from the ministry. I had no idea how we were gonna make it. But I remember walking, I got the call from the leadership and they wanted me out immediately, and I kind of expected, I knew it was coming, but I wasn't quite ready for it. 
and Mary had to take the kids and I was walking through the streets of the neighborhood and I'm praying to the Lord and I'm saying, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I had just finished the book Point Man upstairs in my bedroom. And I couldn't see, we, we didn't make much money and we didn't have much in the bank. I figured we might be able to make it for a month. But the weight of that, the weight of that, losing income. And we got guys right now that are having to face this with vaccine issues. As a matter of conscience, you can't go ahead. And maybe your buddy can, and the guy next to you can, but it's a conscience that you rule. It's 14, you can't do it. So what is that going to mean? You're going to lose income. Well, I mean, wait, wait a minute, I got a responsibility. That's exactly where I was. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I'm walking on the streets, nobody's around, and I'm just talking to the Lord and I'm praying, and I'm just saying, Lord, you got to help me. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared to death. I get back to the house, I told Mary I'd meet her. She comes in with the kids, the phone rings. This guy on the phone says, Steve, this is Tom, our attorney. Why do we have an attorney? Because Mary was in an automobile accident three years before. It was the other guy's fault. The insurance company was notorious. Our doctor said, they never pay. You're gonna have to get an attorney. Here's a guy who's solid, who's trustworthy. We met with him, he said, look, this is gonna take a while. Just forget about it, I'll take care of it. I'm walking around the streets absolutely freaked out. I come in. I'm asking God, help me, get me out of this. I don't know how we're gonna make it past the next 30 days. Hey, Steve, yeah, I got a settlement. You have a settlement? Yeah. He said, but you gotta sign it by noon tomorrow. He said, it's for $24,000. I said, the medical bills were only five. He said, yeah. Well, they were messing around and they were playing with you and I got you 24, but you got to sign it by 12. The next day I was unemployed and I had more money in the bank than I'd ever had in my life. In fact, I had double than I'd ever had in my entire life. He watches over his word to perform it. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're active. We thank you that you're working in the life of every guy in this room. And don't let us lose heart. And don't let us be overwhelmed by fear. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.